that I couldn't ask Eric to do a song without him apologizing for it. Artists, that artistic integrity. Um, those words that we sang, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire but you. Those words are the closing words of Psalm 73, which is what we're looking at together this morning. But you don't have them on your program because we're just looking at the first half of the psalm this morning. It's 28 verses long. We're going to look at 14 verses this week and then 14 verses next week. So if you'll take out your program and look on the back, I'll read it. Truly, God is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pain. Their bodies are sound and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not plagued like other people. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongues range over the earth. Therefore, the people turn and praise them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Such are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I have been plagued. And I'm punished every morning. So it gets better than that next week. It's just the first half. It's, it doesn't end on a, on a sour note like that. But this week I want us to live in the, the sadness a little bit. I, this is the 10th week we've been in this series on the book of Psalms. And I haven't gotten to chime in since week one. So let me just take a second to reiterate why we're doing this series on the book of Psalms. And what makes the book of Psalms so special. The Psalms, unlike other books of the Bible, are not a book primarily about history or theology or ethics, how to live, or even the story of Christ. The Psalms are primarily a book about exploring human emotion. And when I say that, you probably have one of two kind of visceral responses to that based on how you were brought up and your background and that sort of thing to really overgeneralize and oversimplify. There are basically two approaches to human emotion. One would be what I would call a religious approach or a more conservative approach, which would say basically emotions are kind of bad. I don't really need to look at the depth of my own heart to see the bad stuff that's down there. I don't need to look at the profundity of all the icky things that I have going on in myself, because what good would that do? I mean, really, what good would it do to to drag all that stuff up? So I'll kind of just try to ignore it as, as much as I can. And that makes a lot of sense, especially if you believe that God's favor and God's support in your life is something that you have to warrant. It's something that you have to deserve. Because if that's true, if that's the case, that you have to earn God's favor, then it makes a lot of sense that you wouldn't want to look at all this bad stuff you have going on. If you're trying to be a virtuous person, that kind of cuts counter to that. So just try to ignore it and try to live a good life on the surface. That's like a religious, more conservative approach. A more secular approach or a more liberal approach would be to say the exact opposite. The other extreme is to say, no, not only do I want to look at what's in my heart, but my feelings, my emotions are the very core of who I am. 
They're what define me. They're the most true thing about me. More than what I say, I believe. More than my associations, my commitments, my friends, my feelings. That's the real me. How I feel is the real me. And so I want to listen to that. I want to explore that. And I want to follow my emotions. I want to do what they say because that's my truest self. The Psalms are the greatest book ever written on human emotions for the reason that they chart a third way between these extremes. They chart a third way that's only possible in a relationship with God. The psalmists do not repress their emotions. They don't ignore their emotions like the religious approach does, but neither do they bow down to their emotions. Neither are they overawed by their emotions like the secular approach is because of their form. Because of their form, the psalms are not just songs or poems or journal entries or dialogues. They're prayers. And because the psalmists explore their emotions in the presence of God, because they speak their emotions to God, everything changes about how those emotions are handled. Because when God is on the scene, it all looks different. So if God is there with you, if you're talking to God, if you're facing him, then all of a sudden this religious approach doesn't make sense anymore. Because you don't need to be scared about God's judgment. You don't need to be scared that when you drag up your emotions, you're going to push God away. He's right there with you listening to you. But if God is there, if God is on the scene, then this secular approach doesn't make sense either. Because if God is God, then your emotions aren't. If God is divine, then your emotions aren't. There's something higher than your emotions. You don't have to bow down to them. You don't have to do what they say. And that's why the psalmists, that's why people who pray their emotions are able to go to a greater depth and have greater honesty and greater clarity than any other approach. Because when God is present, that's the only time that we can really understand our emotions and face them without having to kind of submit to them. Psalm 73 is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Because in this psalm, the psalmist, this guy Asaph, he faces the most profound emotion of all, which is anger toward God, which is disappointment with God, conflict with God himself. And obviously that, more than any other emotion, is the emotion that you have to face in prayer, which we'll talk about later today. But what we're going to do for the next two weeks is this week talk about why he's angry, what causes anger toward God, and talk about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing on balance. Is it okay to be angry with God, or is it something we should try to avoid? And then next week, for the next 14 verses of the psalm, the second half, we'll look at how do you get out of it. If you're in a conflict with God, if you are mad at God, how do you resolve it? How do you get back on solid ground? That's next week. So you get to live with it for the week in between. If you're mad at God... You just get to stay mad at them for, for a week and then come back next week and figure out how to, how to sort through this. But like I said, we're going to talk about today that it's actually not the, not the worst thing after all. So we'll get into that, but before we do, let's pray. Father, I ask that as we look at your word this morning, as we trace the steps of this person that tried to follow after you and, and found themselves upset and angry, that you would give us courage while we're here in your presence to face our own emotions, to face our own hearts, to look inside ourselves, and to tell you what it is that we feel honestly, to be honest before you, to not put on a show or a charade or um, try to be something that we're not, but to, to see the example of this person that's followed you and to use it as a way to give us courage and to make us have the, the bravery to do the same thing. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and only because of him that we feel confident to do this. Amen. So I think that anger with God, being mad at God, 
um, often masquerades as something else. It often gets covered over. It's something that people don't feel comfortable with. So for people that are irreligious, for people that say they're not religious people, angry with God, the most common cover for it is intellectual doubt. Well, I just don't believe. Well, there's just not enough evidence. I'm not saying that intellectual doubt isn't a real thing. There's some people that just don't believe because there's not enough evidence, but that's very rare. It's more often the case that intellectual doubt is, is a cover for some sort of anger. So there's this famous uh, Christian pastor and, and author, R.C. Sproul, and he tells this story about playing golf with a friend of his, and they're, they're talking, and the conversation turns to religion, and the friend says, well, I'm just, I'm just not religious. And R.C. Sproul says, well, why? And he said, well, I just don't think there's enough evidence. You know, there's not really enough to grab onto. It just, I have too many doubts. I just can't believe it. And so they just leave it at that. And then they go on playing golf. And a couple of holes later, the friend says to him, you know, I just can't believe in a God who would let my baby die. So the guy is, the doubt is not the problem. You can't be mad at someone you don't believe in. The guy believes in God. He's just mad at him. He's mad at him. And that is often the case with intellectual doubt. It's a, it's a masquerade for something else. Now, it's not just irreligious people that do this. In fact, Christians are far more apt to be afraid of being mad at God, to cover it over with something else, to call it something else. So doubt still is a popular choice. You still sometimes will will hear Christians saying, well, you know, I'm just struggling with doubt right now. I just can't believe this or that, which does happen. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but often it's a cover for this sort of conflict with God. Other things that go for covering this are like spiritual dryness. You know, I'm just going through a dry spell right now. I just can't really connect with God, just not feeling it. Or even busyness. You say, well, you know, I'm not having the relationship with God that I'd like to right now, but I'm just really busy. Things have been crazy. All these things are real things that happen in the Christian life, but they also can be a cover for something else because there's one thing that we don't want to admit, and that's that we're mad at God because it feels so bad. Mad at God? How could I be mad at God? I love God. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever before, it sounds crazy, been mad at someone that you love? I mean, it sounds absurd, I know, but have you ever before been mad at somebody you love? See, in our human relationships, we know that we're most often mad with those that we love the most. We're most apt to have conflict with those that we have the closest relationships with. We get that in our human relationships. But for some reason, we want to ignore that when it comes to God. We want to think that it's a bad thing when it comes to God. And you say, well, it's not the same. God's perfect. Well, so I'll ask you another question. Is your conflict with people you love? Is that always 100% a function of their imperfection? No, obviously not. Obviously not. There's at least a couple of other factors that come into play. One would be your own imperfection, and the other would be just plain misunderstanding. You just misunderstand each other. And those two factors, your own imperfection and misunderstanding, those are obviously just as much at play when you relate to God as they are when you relate to somebody else you love. So when you say, oh, I don't get mad at God, what you're saying is, I'm perfect with respect to God. I always understand God perfectly. I never misunderstand him. And that's not a position that you want to be in. So all of a sudden, the the tables have turned a little bit. Because before, not only now is it okay to be mad at God, now it's a sign of honesty. It's a sign of integrity. It's a sign of personal spiritual maturity. And denying it is where you don't want to be. And we'll talk more about why that is as we go on this morning.
But what I want to do with the rest of our time is look at this example from the life of Asaph to, to draw out three things. One is the most common cause of being mad at God. It's not the only cause. It's not the only reason people have conflict with God, but it's the most common one, and it's what Asaph is facing. The second thing is I want to talk about the danger of being mad at God. There is a legitimate reason people are kind of afraid of being mad at God. I want to talk about what that is and how to steer clear of it. And then third, I want to come back to what I just mentioned, which is the the basic necessity of being mad at God. Why it's something that has to happen if you want to be close to God. And why, if it's happening in your life, it's a good thing. It's a good sign. It's a sign that you're on the right track. So we'll look at those three things. And then next week, we'll go through Asaph's step-by-step process in the, in the second half of this psalm, how he regains his footing and makes peace with God. But this week, first, what is the most common cause of being mad at God? What's the most common cause of conflict with God? Let's look at this example from Asaph. He says, I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pain. Their bodies are sound and sleek. And then skipping down to the very end of the page. Such are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Asaph has a problem, and his problem is, is that he's lived this good, virtuous, religious, moral, upstanding life. And he sees people that are vain and are um, immoral and are cruel and are full of themselves and are only care about things that don't matter and mock God. And he sees these people having prosperity in the world, doing well, going on from success to success, while he himself is afflicted in some way. He says here, for all day long I have been plagued and I am punished every morning. The last verse there on your outline. For all day long I've been plagued and I'm punished every morning. So we don't know what he's facing. It's probably a good thing that we don't know, so we can just kind of fill in the blank for ourselves with whatever you might be facing or have faced. We don't know what this this punishment is, whether he's in physical pain or whether he's going through a tough time or whether he just isn't having the success he wants to have. We're not sure what it is, but whatever it is, life is not going the way that he'd like it to go. Things are not happening the way he'd like them to and what makes things worse, what he's really torn up about is all the success that other people are having who aren't playing by the rules, who are doing everything wrong. It seems like their lives are really easy, and he's trying to do this hard thing to live morally, and it's not getting him anywhere. I think it's very important to notice that he focuses most of his energy on them. What he's really upset about is that they're having success. He could deal with his own misfortunes and his own setbacks. He could handle that. What he can't handle is them getting ahead for no reason. This human phenomenon has been um, proven, I guess you could say, now in a really famous behavioral science experiment that has been really popular over the last 10 years. They just keep repeating and repeating because they can't believe the results. And it's like Asaph could have told you this, but... The, the experiment goes, you, you put two people in a room and you put $100 on the table and $10 bills, 10 $10 bills. And you give them a minute on the clock. And if they can come to an agreement about how to split the money, then they, they walk away with whatever they agreed to take away. But if they can't, then the money stays on the table. But the catch is only one of the two people gets to make an offer. And then the other person just has to say, Yes or no, yes or no. So they, there's no, like, haggling. I mean, if it's just, if they can both talk, they'll just be like, well, 50-50, that's fair, and walk away. But only one person is allowed to, to make an offer. 
Now, logically, if you're the person in the accepting position and the other person, one second left on the clock, says, okay, I get 90, you get 10. Logically, you say, okay, I'll take that because 10 bucks is better than nothing. What does it matter what the other guy gets, right? Well, wrong. That never happens. They do this experiment you know, a thousand times, and nobody will ever take 10 bucks, even though rationally you should take 10 bucks. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want the 10 bucks? Because it's not fair. It's not fair that that person should get more than me. So they almost always will reject any deal but 50-50, which is crazy. It's crazy from a rational point of view, but it makes sense from this emotional point of view where we don't want someone else to get more than we have or to be dealt with differently than we are for no good reason at all. We can't handle the injustice of it. And that word injustice is at the core of what Asaph is dealing with here. And injustice, I would say, would be a good label for the most common cause of being angry with God, with with conflict with God, because it's the thing that we can't understand the most, injustice. So it takes all sorts of different forms macro level, personal level. On a macro level, it's like, well, why does one nation prosper and another nation live in poverty? You know, that's not fair. Why does that happen? Now, there's books that come out all the time trying to explain why that happens in terms of the immediate causes. You know, guns, germs, and steel was a big one from like 10 years ago trying to explain why it happens for, you know, the like sociological reasons or even the geological reasons was, I think, what that book was about. But that doesn't answer the bigger question. Why does God let it happen? Why does God let whole peoples live this way and other whole peoples live this other way? And it goes on that way for centuries or millennia. But to get a lot more personal, which is where the questions kind of, where we feel the force of them. You know, why two people have cancer, one person catches it in time, another person doesn't. That doesn't make sense. Why does that happen? Two sons are born, one to a father who's really stable and secure and loving and another to a father who's not there. Why does that happen? That doesn't make sense. It's not fair. Two car accidents, two drunk drivers, you know, one person, one car, everybody's fine. The other car, everybody's not fine. Or to get back to the R.C. Sproul's friend that we talked about at the beginning, two pregnancies, two troubled pregnancies and one perfect baby and then one stillbirth. Why does that happen? Those questions, a couple observations about them. One, I don't think that you really feel the force of them ever until you're on the losing end. You know, you you think you might get it. You kind of get the dilemma intellectually. But until you've been on the losing end of one of those those dichotomies, you don't really feel the force of the question the same way. But once you are on the losing end, then all of a sudden it seems like the most pressing, the most desperate question on earth. Why is God mismanaging the world? Why is God mismanaging my life? Because that's what it looks like. That's the, f- the first thing. The second thing I want to say is just related to that. Is that th- these things are, I mean, I guess this goes without saying, but you know, you all are more world-wise than I am, but just because there's a myth out there that continues to persist, I'll just say these things do happen, and it is seemingly random. Like, there's not a discernible pattern. I think that for people who have never been on the losing side of one of these dichotomies, they secretly believe, even if they wouldn't say it out loud, that God protects his chosen ones, that God looks out for his chosen ones, that there's a halo of protection around the the car of the one person, or that you know he always makes sure it works out a certain way for for the people that love him. 
That is a lie from hell, and it's something that Satan wants us to believe, wants you to believe, for the very reason that then if that's your cute little simplistic worldview, what happens to you when you're on the losing end? What happens to you when you get the short end of the stick? You have nowhere to go. So these are the sorts of questions that Asaph's dealing with, and for him, it may seem like kind of a petty issue of just people's material success you know, versus his own. Um, it's not necessarily life and death like some of those subjects we just talked about but at the same time we don't know exactly what he was going through so that's the cause of it this injustice in the world this injustice in our own life that's the most common not the only but the most common cause of conflict with god and that's what asaph is dealing with second thing i want to talk about is what's the danger of it how can conflict with god go wrong asaph is here in the psalms in the bible talking to god about his anger why is this a dangerous thing to do? How can it go wrong? Look with me toward the bottom, the second to, to last stanza there. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And then the second from the top stanza. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. All in vain I have kept my heart clean. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. What's he saying here? He's saying, I think I did it all for nothing. I've been working really hard. I've been trying to live this virtuous life. And the evidence is not backing me up. I think I made the wrong choice. I think I'm on the wrong path. That line about my feet had almost stumbled. I almost slipped. The picture there, uh, you, um, you can't lose your foothold if you're walking on level ground, you know, you can stub your toe or trip, but you can't lose your foothold. The picture there is he's on a mountain or he's on a, a rock face of some sort. And all throughout Scripture, this picture of losing your footing is used as a picture for kind of losing the whole thing, of losing your grip on life, of, on the basis of your life, of losing your faith. And he's saying, and looking at how things had turned out, I, I started to feel like the whole thing was kind of just a joke and I should probably find another basis i started to feel like i was climbing the wrong mountain which is the easiest way to you know slip is if you start to doubt that you're even supposed to be on that mountain to begin with you start to doubt that it's even a worthwhile climb the um eat pray love movie came out this weekend i didn't see it but it's about this woman who decides that her life kind of doesn't mean anything, that the basis of life that she's been living with isn't the right one. And so she goes on this journey to discover kind of what's the right basis of life. What should life be about? Which apparently is like, you know, good restaurants and pretty views from the trailer, but I shouldn't judge it without seeing it. Anyway, um, that's what Asaph is about to do. The problem is, like, unlike the, the girl on Eat, Pray, Love, his basis of life wasn't just like materialism or you know the american dream or whatever which we kind of like cheer for people when they want to try something else and get out of the rat race asaph's basis for life was already the religious life was already the higher life was already this life with god and yet he's going through this moment of thinking i think that this maybe isn't worth it i think that i maybe shouldn't be on this particular path so the danger of getting angry with God is that you turn your back on God altogether. The danger of getting angry with God is that you go a different direction and leave the whole thing behind. Now, how do you prevent against that? Asaph shows us how. The only surefire way to prevent yourself from turning your back on God when you get angry with God is to make sure that the primary way that you express your anger to God is through prayer. 
the primary way that you talk about your anger is to God himself. Because if you're facing him, then there's no danger of you turning your back on him. If you're, if you're pointed toward him, if you're talking to him directly about your anger, then there's no danger of you leaving him. I'm not saying that it's bad to do other things. It's not bad to talk to friends about your anger toward God, or it's not bad to talk to a therapist or to, to just kind of spend time by yourself. But that shouldn't be the principal way that you deal with your anger. That shouldn't be the principal way that you express these feelings. Because if they are, then God may get left out of the picture altogether. The only way to make sure that God is the one that stays at the center of your life is to make sure that he's the one that stays at the center of this trial, too, and that you express all these things directly to him. Because he's the one that you have the issue with anyway, remember, you know. it's like I think another thing that, that kind of goes wrong with these sorts of questions is people get mad at other people or mad at themselves, you know, mad at the drunk driver, mad at the doctor, mad at whoever. And that's kind of silly. I mean, God's, God's the guy that let it happen. God's the one you're after. You have to have the courage to go toe-to-toe with him, and prayer is the avenue through which that happens. It's the only guarantee that you won't leave God altogether in your anger. And we'll talk more about how you pray through this process and how you kind of get through it to the other side next week, step-by-step, as I said. But for now, I want to close this morning by talking about, okay, well, if this is so dangerous, shouldn't we just avoid it altogether? You know, why is this so necessary? What's What's the upside? Why, why shouldn't we just try to keep from getting angry with God to begin with? And the only thing I want to say about this, besides what I already said of just anger with somebody that you love is natural. You have to have conflict to get close to somebody. The only additional thing I want to say about this is just that this sort of conflict is inevitable the better a Christian you are. The closer you get to God, the more inevitable this kind of conflict becomes I think there's a tendency to, to read Asaph here and to, to think about what he's going through and to feel a little bit like, well, that's kind of immature, isn't it? I mean, you know, he, what does he want from God? He expects God to just, like, give him everything he needs. It's kind of childish. I mean, this kind of seems like a little bit of a Sunday school level lesson. I think I've even got this one figured out, and I'm not even, like, a super Christian. Like, what's the big deal? God doesn't always give you what you want. So what? You know, grow up. We, we see ourselves as superior to Asaph. Um, that view only occurs to people, and I'll put myself in this category, who have not tried very hard. Because what is Asaph's real problem? Asaph's real problem is that he's done a good job at washing his hands, that he's done a good job at living an innocent life. Asaph's real problem is that he's tried really, really hard, and so he expects things to turn out a certain way. It's easy to not be disappointed with God if you haven't put in very much effort yourself. It's easy to not be very disappointed with God if you haven't really expected much of him to begin with. It's the good Christians, it's the people who are faithful, it's the righteous people who most often face disappointment with God because they actually expected something from God. They actually thought God was going to do things the way he said he was, or at least the way they thought he said he was. It's not until you get to that place that you really experience this type of tension. So not only is it, you know, an okay thing, but to, to be really blunt, if you've never been in this position before, then you aren't trying very hard. You aren't trying very hard. Because once you start trying, once you start holding up your end of the bargain, then it's inevitable that you're going to have this sort of conflict with God because God does stuff that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. When you get to know the real God, he does stuff that doesn't make sense, that you don't like, that makes you angry, that hurts you. 
That's why people make idols. We want to be religious. We want to have a relationship with some God, but the real God is really scary and really hard to know. So let's make a little God over here that we can worship and control and understand. And then we can have our, our little religion that doesn't demand as much of us. And, and we don't get angry anymore. But if you try to know the real God, if you try to push yourself to know this God, this God of the Bible, he's going to do things you don't understand. And there's going to be conflict. Now, the way that I can prove that to you beyond any doubt for those of you that still aren't sure about what I'm saying here is that all throughout Scripture, this is how people who are close to God are. They have conflict with God all the time. But the clearest example is Jesus in Gethsemane at the end of his life, the only person that's lived this perfect life. See, Asaph says, I've kept my hands pure. I've lived this innocent life. Well, that's not absolutely true. It's, it's relatively true. It's true relative to other people around him that he's purer or, or more innocent. But Jesus is the only guy that's absolutely innocent, absolutely pure, absolutely clean, has absolutely followed after God perfectly every day of his life. And he's at the end of his life, and he finds himself in conflict with God. This perfect man who's followed God perfectly finds himself in conflict with God. He's, he's perplexed. He's confused. He's in turmoil. And he says to God, God, I thought it made sense, but it's not really making sense anymore. I don't really get it anymore. And so I have something to ask you. I was wondering if we maybe could do it a different way. I was wondering if maybe this, this cup could pass from me, if we could try some other route because this doesn't make sense to me anymore. And he gets an answer from heaven, and the answer is no. No, we're not going to do it a different way. We're going to do it this way. This is my way, even if you don't understand so if Jesus has conflict with God, then it's pretty clear that this is something that's kind of part of knowing him. It's just part of the deal. He's going to do things we don't understand. And it's not a sign that you're far from him. It's often a sign that you're on his path. It's often a sign that you're following after him just the way you should. If you find yourself in this sort of conflict with him, if you find yourself angry at him. So we're going to talk about the steps for dealing with it next week. But in the meantime, just take this this week and think about, are there areas unexplored in my life? I mean, I'm not trying to play psychotherapist here, but I guess this is kind of the sad thing is that, that psychotherapy has kind of overtaken this realm. And I, I think it has a place there, but also we, we need to deal with these things on a spiritual level, on a purely you and God level as well. So think about this week. What is it that I've covered over? What is it that I've pushed down? What is it that I've called busyness or spiritual dryness or doubt or whatever, but really it's just masquerading for something I'm angry with God about? What is that? Think about it this week. And if you have the courage to do it, pray it out to God. Tell God why you're angry. Tell God why you think that he messed up, why things don't look the way that they should look to you. Tell him that. And then come back next week and we'll talk together about how to deal with that. Let's pray. God, we know that we won't always understand you, and we know that you don't always do things the exact way that we'd like you to. But we do ask, God, that as we come to you and try to be honest with you and try to be vulnerable with you, that on the basis of what Christ did on the cross and on the basis of your mercy, that you would receive us gently and that you would... Give us a sense of your openness toward us and your love for us as we try to tell you about how we feel honestly. And God, as we do that, I pray that you would draw us closer to you, that you would 
Give us strength to live the life that you've called us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.